are you going to be able to get through this? Yeah. Maybe it'll make it funnier. Maybe it'll make it awful. Maybe we might vomit halfway through and have to stop. Maybe it's Maybelline. We'll never, we never know. <laughs> I'm Rachel. And I'm Leah. And, and this, this is, is Hashtag History. History. The podcast for both history nerds and history haters alike. Where we dive into history's greatest stories of controversy, conspiracy, and corruption. Hey guys, I'm Rachel. And I'm Leah. And welcome to Hashtag History, episode 25, a true crime podcast disguised as an informative history podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. But seriously, this season is borderline history slash true crime, and I am 100% okay with that. Girl, you know I am too. <laughs> The topics we cover on this podcast are history's greatest stories of controversy, conspiracy, and corruption, and murder and blood and mayhem seem to fall right in line with that criteria. Mm-hmm, absolutely. <laughs> the other thing we really like to cover on this podcast are things close to home. Of course, we have loved discussing higher profile historical events such as the JFK assassination, Chappaquiddick, the Great Fire of Rome. Wow, you didn't list any of my topics. Jack the Ripper. Thank you. That was it. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, those topics, including Jack the Ripper, those <laughs> topics many people nationally or even globally know about. But we also really like to discuss things close to home that even people from our hometown might not know about. I didn't. Crazy. Crazy. We're from Sacramento, California, and Sacramento has so much history, as we discussed just a couple episodes ago when we were covering the James Stanford case. Mm -hmm. And one of those rich histories in Sacramento is that it is home to one of America's greatest, most methodical, most deceptive, and most unsuspecting serial killers. Dum, dum, dum. <sighs> That's right. This week, we are discussing Dorothea Puente, a little old white lady who, during the 1980s, killed upwards of nine people and buried them in her backyard while she continued to collect her victims' social security checks. I don't, like, how did I not hear about this? Watching every episode of Forensic Files? Like, they didn't do a Forensic Files on this? I do not know how you do not know this, but what I do know is that it is time for drinks. Oh, so I shouldn't stuff a chip in my mouth at this moment. <laughs> Got it. Um, this week's cocktail is aptly named the Puente Punch. That's fantastic. But thankfully, it has no relation to the murdering madwoman we'll be discussing today. Although uh, my correlation is going to be that it looks disgusting. <laughs> <laughs> like, when I was making it for Rachel and I, and she was kind of helping, she was like, you know, stra straining the ingredients and like grabbing dif different ingredients for me and stuff. She, we were both like holding back, like gags. <laughs> So I don't, I don't know. I'm, I'm beyond nervous because just smelling this one is gross to me. 
I I mentioned well first let me read the ingredients okay. so you you guys can get on the same page as okay. us and yeah. please do not duplicate this unless we say it's really good. <laughs> yeah, you never know. <laughs> um <laughs> I love that before we've even tried the drink and rated it we're telling people do not duplicate it. I mean I don't know. Okay. Okay. So ice cool. That's the first ingredient. A fourth cup of fresh 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 orange juice. I love orange juice. And I squeezed it from the orange tree in my backyard. That is so fantastic. Yeah. Um, two tablespoons of sweetened condensed milk. That's the barf part. That's the barf part. And I, I told her it smelled like breast milk. And it did. And I know that because I've had to smell breast milk before. And the only time I've ever in my life used condensed milk was to make a pumpkin pie on Thanksgiving. Yeah, key lime so. pie. That's the only time. Okay, um, and then an eighth teaspoon of <laughs> what's happening? This spoon of um, pure vanilla extract. Yeah, and I just did a splash of it. I didn't actually measure out an That's eighth fine. teaspoon, and then a fourth cup of rum, which I don't know what that is in. It's more than a shot. Of shots. It's more than a shot. And this is the second episode we're recording tonight, which means we're at least three and a half in. Okay. Or we will be if we finish this drink. If drinks. we finish this drink. <laughs> okay, and the instructions are also disgusting because yeah. it starts with moisten the outer rim of a highball glass with a lime wedge and coat with sugar, which I didn't do. I didn't do it. No, the word moisten. You got you. I skipped that one. You got me on the word moisten. moisten. <laughs> <laughs> and then step two is fill the glass and cocktail shaker with ice. Add a half teaspoon of what? Okay, add the sugar, the orange juice, the condensed milk, vanilla extract, and amber rum. I don't know if the rum I used was amber rum. Um, shake well and then strain into a prepared glass. <sighs> okay, according to Food and Wine magazine, I'm just like so not looking forward to this. <laughs> according to Food and Wine magazine, this creamy dessert cocktail is named after the late Timbale Bangin' head band leader Tito Puente, who popularized Latin music around the world in the 1950s. I love that it doesn't actually have to do with no. I was just Puente, very literal, but, but the name I love it. Okay. I really love that because then we learned a little something else too about yeah, someone else. There's a little history in there for you. Okay, you ready to vomit? <sighs> just don't think of breast milk. <laughs> Shit. <laughs> I wish there was this much more orange juice. I put more than it actually called for. I, I used all the orange juice I had. Shit. Um, okay, what I'll say. Um, what am I thinking of the little candies that are... Oh, the creamsicles. Thank the you. creamsicle. And it, Think of it like a creamsicle. The aftertaste is creamsicle. The aftertaste in my mouth is creamsicle. I actually don't like creamsicles. Oh, I I freaking love orangeicle, orange orange creamsicles or whatever they're yeah, called. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, okay. The orange ones. I I love them, mm-hmm. and the aftertaste is that taste. Uh, the smell of the condensed milk, um, and the taste of it in the mouth is uh, gross. As opposed to where else? As opposed to the aftertaste in my mouth, the taste of it when it's actually the liquid is in my mouth. Okay. Um. You have to drink at least half of it. All right, I'm gonna I'm gonna chug. chug. Yeah. What's your rating while I chug? Three, two, 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 two. Oh, she's going for it, guys. Now I am too. Oh no, it, it reminds me of a creamsicle. Just don't think about the condensed milk. Why'd you? S- I was almost done, and then you said, "Don't think about the milk." 
I actually like. I mean, it's okay. I'm moving it up to a three. <laughs> like that's a, like a big. I'm moving it all the way up to a three, guys. <laughs> um, I could have done with like a tiny bit more orange juice, which you said you actually put in more orange juice than the recipe called but for. But anyway. it was also home squeezed fresh orange juice instead of like store bought. So maybe so that- a little bit thicker. If it had been like store bought, thicker orange yeah, juice, thicker. maybe. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna put it at the four. What? Because I like I like creamsicles. You rated like the them. last one at a four or a five. A four. I don't remember what I rated the last one. It tasted like there water. Were, there were three and a half shots between the last one and now. Okay. All right, guys. So don't recommend it. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't recommend. Unless you like condensed milk. <laughs> Unless you like condensed milk. Right. If you like condensed milk. All, you will be all about this. Which for us, we poured the tiny, tiny, tiny amount of condensed milk in the glass and then dumped the rest of the can in the trash. Yeah, it's in my sink currently, but it will be entering the trash can momentarily. <laughs> all right, yeah. guys. Cool. So thanks for that. I mean, to me, thanks to me for that. Thanks to you for that. All right, guys. So before we begin... Let me tell you about my personal connection to this case. For one, I used to work at a large government building in downtown Sacramento. And when I was being good and making sure I was getting my steps in, I would take a walk on my lunch break. And nine times out of ten, I would make sure I passed by Dorothea Puente's infamous house located at 1426 F Street. I had no clue you were this weird. Oh, I'm weird. Mm Mm-hmm. The house is still there, and it has been converted into somewhat of a tourist spot with signs in the yard that literally say things like, trespassers will be drugged and buried in the yard, or keep out from under the grass. There's even this super creepy mannequin dressed like Dorothea Puente in her iconic red coat, and she's holding a shovel. So it's cool. Like, I used to, I I know it's weird, but I literally worked, let me do the alphabet, E-F-G-H. I, J, wait, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I. I worked four blocks away from her house. Yeah. So, I mean, taking like a 30-minute walk, it was cool to see her house. It's cool. On a daily basis? Stop it. Like every day? Most, did you not hear me say nine times out of Mm ten? Then again, I also wasn't being like very consistent with actually being active. Mm. So. So a walk was like, regardless of the weird you know, walking past the weird murder house was a positive part of your day. Yeah. No, it was actually the best part of my work day. So (laughs) anyway, I also have another little connection to this case because of my job, my former job. Um, I know a few people that work and or worked for the Sacramento police department and everyone there either still remembers when this was all going down in the 1980s or the stories have been circulated so much that the people that work there now that weren't there in the eighties still feel like they were part of it or desperately wish that they had been. Why did you want to be part of that? Because it was cool, like, just to talk about this case with your coworkers. Anyway, my lips are completely numb. 
And finally, my last connection to the case. You guys already know that I am a weirdo. I really don't need to preface things with that anymore. Alex and I attended a play put on in downtown, down, downtown, downtown, downtown Sacramento just this last week, although that will actually be several weeks ago by the time this episode comes out. Mm-hmm. Anyway. It was called Dorothea Puente Tells All, and it was an awesome production that basically looked at things from her side, like her side of the story. Why are you laughing? An awesome production about this girl who murdered. The it shit was out of fantastic. People. I never actually asked you what you thought of it. I loved it. Wow. I loved it. You know what was terrifying about it, though, was we got there like maybe like 20 minutes early. Oh, and it was in a questionable place. Very questionable. Um, what is this theater called? It is called the California Stage Theater, maybe. Um, and it was a questionable location. But when you go in, it was cool. We paid like twenty bucks for tickets, mm-hmm. and then it's like free wine. You just like oh. give you give a donation if you want to, and so that was cool. But then we got into the theater, um. And we were there like 20 minutes early. And why did the lead actress who was playing Dorothea Puente come out into the audience, which the audience is only, it only seats, I think like 47 people or something like that. It's very small. It's only three rows of seats. Okay. She comes out from like kind of backstage and I looked at her. I was like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. She looks just like her. That's Dorothea. And she came out in character shaking people's hands. Hello. Thanks for seeing me. My name is Dorothea. You're a nerd. You're so excited about this. I was so excited about it and also, like, totally had goosebumps. We've also seen her in another play. Does that make us, like, theater, like... No, it makes you weirdos. Okay, fine, okay, fine, okay, fine. Which one was better? Who played her better? No, no, no. We've seen that actress. Oh! Okay, then, yeah, that makes you theater nerds. <laughs> yeah. You know how your phones listen to you, so they send you ads that are specifically targeted for you? Mm-hmm. That was how we even heard about this show in the first place. <gasps> oh, wow. Yeah. Is that bad? That's bad. Okay. So Alex got the ad. Oh, you didn't even get it. Alex did. But perhaps it's because I talk about it so much and I hang out with him so much. And you're a theater dork. Yeah. So Alex got an ad on his phone for this show and we decided that we had to go and we bought our tickets right away, which thank God we did because in the weeks leading up to the show, all tickets were sold out. I mean, it was a theater for 40 people. So Yeah, but it's still, I think it goes to show how much the Sacramento community and the nation really are fascinated by the story. Except for those of us who didn't know anything about it until you mentioned it well, in then, passing one day. Then get ready. You were just like, oh yeah, the Puente murder or whatever. And, and I actually, was like, yeah. What the? F- I was like, what are you talking about? Actually, truthfully, yeah. Let's talk about the origins of this episode right now. I mentioned it. I don't know how it came into conversation. It was just an everyday conversation for you. <laughs> but I mentioned it in everyday conversation to Leah. When I learned that she was not familiar with the case, I said, we're doing an episode about it. Yeah. And now I'm about to be taught. I'm, I'm like dropping. She's throwing signs. I'm throwing signs. I'm <laughs> drop some knowledge on this brain. Okay. I'm going to cut that out. Okay. <laughs> I liked it, though. 
All right, guys, so let's dive right into it. Take a shot. Shot, 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 I really shot, hope that shot. people drink while they're do- listening. I know most people drive, so don't do it while you're driving. But if you're listening at home. I hope you're having a lovely drink on I behalf mean, of us that just drink condensed milk. I still have half of mine to drink. Oh, I'm glad mine is behind me. <laughs> All right, Leah, I know when I told you we were doing an episode about this case, you did a little digging on your own, Mm -hmm. so you're familiar with the incident. Right. So what I want you to do is erase all the images you have seen of Ms. Fuente, in particular her mugshot, and look at this picture of this little old lady and let me know what you think. So my, I always look at these mugshots and whatever, and I look at their eyes. And while her exterior does just look like grandma, like your next door neighbor, 85 year old. No. How old is she? 70 year old retiree. I can't tell you that is part of the information I will be okay. divulging um, later. If you zoom in. Rachel, <laughs> she just zoomed in at like 250% on the screen. Stop. Tell me it's not obvious that that is a murderer (laughs) okay so um you actually gave the wrong answer oh yeah because that's not her mugshot that's actually um a (gasps) lovely picture of her if we are going to discuss her in this context though um i'll give you a picture to look at her okay hold on i haven't uploaded yet because that's I wasn't like expecting her, her to take that turn. That's, but that's a glamour fine. shot of her? Is that what you're saying? That was her glamour shot. And you could still see the crazy. Okay, so since you immediately saw the crazy, okay. check out this other picture of her. Oh, no, that's a lady who murders. She's terrifying, no? Um, yes. She's terrifying. Well, then again, how old is she? We will get into this. I'm sorry. Because, <laughs> like, I feel like you're going to go crazy when you get old. I mean, I might. I mean... You're living in a body I mean, I that will. is literally rotting. Okay, then I will. Old age is creepy. <laughs> okay, so listeners, what I was hoping Leah was going to say is that she looked like a fairly innocent little white lady. <laughs> I just totally derailed that train. Completely derailed it. Um, you guys check out the pictures that we post to Instagram and let us know what you think. But my hope, of course, was that she was going to <laughs> look like, more oh, innocent. Yeah. Yeah. Because, like... Our episode, um, episode 23, about the 1982 Tylenol poisonings, right away, that James William Lewis picture was... It's the eyes. Okay. So Leah saw that in Dorothea Puente, Mm -hmm. but a lot of people did not. She didn't look like a killer. She looked like a little old white lady. In a day-to-day setting, do you look straight into the people's eyes and then into their souls? No. Okay. Well, I do that when I look at serial murderers. (laughs) Serial killers (laughs) pictures, and I can see the crazy. Okay, so what I want you guys to do is not see that and to look at her as an innocent little white lady. Okay, let's start with some backstory about Puente. Dorothea Helen Gray was born on January 9th, 1929 in Redlands, California. I don't actually know where Redlands are. Um, Isn't it the sort of Bay Area or no? I'll look it up while you continue. San Bernardino, so it's SoCal. It's like it's like Inland Empire. Got it. So uh, Anaheim, drive into the desert from Anaheim. Perfect. There isn't much known about her childhood, and what information that is out there contains a lot of discrepancies. What we do know, though, is that both of her parents were alcoholics and both died before she was even 10 years old. 
Mm. She was taken to an orphanage before family in Fresno, California, took her in. She fabricated a lot of stories about her early life, though, many of which involved growing up in Mexico as one of a dozen kids. This Mexico thing becomes pretty important later because, later in life, she used it as a way to connect with the impoverished Hispanic community. But we'll get there. I promise. Oh, that's we'll not, get there. That's not an aspect that I was aware of, so I'm excited to learn about that. Yes. Now, the next thing we know about Puente is that she got married in 1945 at the age of 16 to a man named Fred McFall. Mm -hmm. They ended up having two daughters together. And for anyone that does know some of the story about Dorothea Puente and are surprised to hear that she had children because you had never heard that before, here's why. She ended up sending her first daughter away to live with family and then gave the second daughter up for adoption. There are discrepancies in whether her husband simply left her or if he had a heart attack and died. Either way, by 1948, Dorothea is single. No husband, no kids. Mm, she probably murdered him. <laughs> there is. There are rumors okay. that. Now, to make ends meet, she began forging checks. She was quickly caught by law enforcement, though, and sentenced to a year in prison, for which she only ended up serving six months. After being released from prison, she married her then second husband, Axel Johannes, whom she remained married to for over a decade. That's a name. Yeah, a Axel. Jo Johansson. What you did said I say? Johannes. His name is Johansson, guys. Should I go back? No. Okay. I want to keep it in. <laughs> okay. It wasn't a happy, healthy decade, though, with Puente continuing to get in trouble with the law and spending additional time behind bars. This time that she served while married to Johansson was for running a brothel. Once she was released from jail, she divorced Johansson. Jo Johansson, yeah, I said that correctly. Yeah. And married, in case you aren't keeping track, husband number tres, Roberto Puete. And that is where she gets that last name that we know her by. She didn't stay married to Puente particularly long, though, as she quickly realized he was a drunk and she wasn't putting up with any of that. But her brothel behavior was totally fine. I don't understand. What don't you understand here? Additionally, Puente was also continuing her troublesome lifestyle and spent more time behind bars, this time for dealing drugs and for theft. Like, what kind of seedy underbelly does Sacramento have that I wasn't aware of? I don't know, Leah. Do you know about Richard Chase? Probably not. This Sacramento vampire? What the fuck? Yeah. We probably won't cover it because it's very true crime, but literally Sacramento, I think it was in the 80s, had a dude that drank people's blood. Um, gross. And then also I watch, um, or I did watch live, not live PD, live rescue. Okay. I never and, watched those. And they're, there's, um, they're like based, they're following like firemen and, um, people in Sacramento. And anyways, every single call that was in Sacramento was either like a traffic, like a very bad traffic accident or a drug overdose. So not and it's murder. I, no. So drugs though. Apparently. So bad. I didn't know about this. Now, it's right around this time in the latter part of the 1960s that Dorothea Puente acquires a Sacramento house on F Street. It's not the infamous Sacramento house on F Street, though. No, Puente buys a three-story, 16-bedroom house located at 2100 F Street, which she converted into a boarding house. That would be 21st and F Street. I'm going to go drive by there sometime. Yeah, uh, yeah, except this one's not the one that's preserved. 
It is around this time that Dorothea marries and divorces her final husband, Pedro Montalvo. I'm always, well, not always, curious in her case why she took the Puente name, but not her last Agreed. I Agreed. And I tried to do a lot of research about that, and I couldn't figure Maybe it out. Maybe she was like, I'm just tired. Yeah. Maybe she, I'm not doing the name change thing again. I'm just so tired. <laughs> Around this time, she began frequenting local bars and preying on older men by forging their signatures and stealing their money. She ended up being charged with 34 counts of treasury fraud and was sentenced to five years probation. Mm -hmm. A few years later, in the 1970s, she was caught forging the signatures of her tenants at 2100 F Street and stealing their money for which she was arrested once again and placed on probation with her probationary terms explicitly stating that she was to never run a boarding house again. Okay, are we following this? Lots of husbands. Lots of crimes, lots of jail time, and lots of probation. Mm-hmm. That was just the backstory. Oh. We are now finally getting to the main event. Hey, everyone. It is Leah. I just wanted to hop on here to explain why you may hear a bit of a sound quality difference and a lack of my voice for the next five to ten minutes of this episode. And that's because, um, well... Stuff happens, and Rachel's mic cut off when we were recording together. So anyways, the rest of this episode, you're mostly going to hear her re-recorded voice and less of my quippy comments. (laughs) Hopefully you guys enjoy, and thank you so much for sticking around through these technical difficulties with us. It all begins with Ruth Monroe in 1982. Monroe was a longtime friend of Puente's, so when Monroe became ill, she reached out to her friend and asked if she would be willing to care for her as somewhat of a caregiver during this tough time. Puente invites her to stay with her, and lo and behold, only two weeks after moving into Puente's place, Monroe dies of a supposed drug overdose. Within just two weeks, both Monroe's $6,000 that she had brought along with her and Monroe herself were gone. It has long been suspected that Monroe was Puente's first victim, but at the time, her death was ruled a suicide. But before Puente could commit murder again, she was thrown back in prison for robbing a guy she met in a bar. Honestly, it is exhausting how many times that old lady was in and out of prison. But now here we are finally at 1426 F Street. Puente gets out of prison and here she is at 1426 F Street running a boarding house, which, if you will recall, was strictly against her probationary terms. We have now reached the year 1985, which was not that long ago. Puente began taking in tenants and she had a type. There was a trend with the tenants that she took in. She always took in the less fortunate, those with little to no family ties, criminals, homeless, elderly, and so on. The one other thing that all of her tenants had in common were government benefits. Puente was only interested in tenants that were receiving social security or other government aid. She made sure that all of their mail came directly to 1426 F Street, and only she was allowed to check the mailbox. It doesn't take a genius to know that she was collecting the benefits made out to her tenants by personally subtracting their rent, her cut, and other bills from their checks before giving them an allowance. 
Something I should say here, because there might be some confusion about why these tenants let her do this, you know, let her give them an allowance from their own money. It's important to note that a lot of these people were elderly, sickly, mentally ill, and had never had someone help them out with their finances prior to Puente. Many of her tenants didn't know how to even receive benefits, much less know how to manage them when they did receive them. Remember how I talked at the top of the episode about how she identified with the Hispanic community? English was not the first language of many of her tenants, and understanding government benefits was not a simple concept. So it's really not that insane that her tenants allowed her to accept their checks and do what she would with them. Also keep in mind that Puente was portraying herself as a sweet and innocent 70-something-year-old woman. What harm could she do or could she want to do? Social workers were also particularly fond of Puente. Unaware of her parole violations, social workers placed several down-on-their-luck individuals in Puente's care and praised her for taking in even the roughest of the lot. But the harmony between social workers and Puente didn't last long. In fact, a social worker is the very reason Dorothea Puente eventually got caught. In 1988, a man by the name of Alberto Montoya was placed in Puente's care by a social worker. Montoya, known as Bert, was a homeless schizophrenic. The social worker was ecstatic when she found Puente. Unlike other homes that she had tried to place Montoya in, Puente's boarding house looked so homey and clean, and it had a beautiful yard full of flower beds and whatnot. And Puente herself was so charming, portraying herself as a former World War II nurse, a member of the Hispanic community, and willing to take in someone even as rough as Montoya. Things turned sour quickly, though. In just doing her job, the social worker called Puente regularly to check in on Bert and see how he was doing, but he was never there when she would call. Under the pressure of these constant phone calls, Puente ended up telling the social worker that Bert had left for Mexico to visit family, and later that a family member had picked him up and taken him off to Utah. (laughs) After months of this evasion, the social worker ended up contacting law enforcement and reporting a missing person on November 7th, 1988. Law enforcement arrived at the boarding house at 1426 F Street, where Puente graciously allowed them entrance. She repeated the same story to them that Montoya was in Utah with family. They left the house that day, but went back to the police department and ran a background check on Puente. And what they found was disturbing. Not only did they find her criminal background, and not only did they find that she was in violation of her parole, they also found that this little old lady who had been claiming to be in her 70s all this time was actually only 59 years old. Learning all of this, officers from the Sacramento Police Department returned to her house on November 11th, 1988. Now, they returned to her house without a search warrant. That part is important. They arrive at her house and ask again if they can have a look around. And again, Puente is very gracious and welcoming and says, you know, please do search around. That is until they reach the backyard and upon noticing some recently disturbed soil, they asked if they could search the grounds. She becomes hesitant, but ends up saying, yeah, okay, you know, go for it, which was good since the police department had already brought along their own shovels. And so the digging began. 
Leah, I've uploaded a picture of the backyard at 1426 F Street so that you can describe it for our listeners. Oh, God. Ta-da! It's a pile of dirt. (laughs) And a shovel. (laughs) Now, I know this picture sucks, but the point in showing it is just to show just how small the yard was. I mean, you know downtown Sacramento backyards, Leah. They're dinky. The cops started digging in her backyard with the goal of locating the body of Alberto Montoya. And it doesn't take them long to locate a human leg and foot. Problem is, this human leg was very quickly identified as belonging to an older female. And based on the state of decomposition, it was also clear that this female body had been dead for a long time. And although law enforcement wasn't sure who the body belonged to, they knew one thing. It sure as hell did not belong to Mr. Alberto Montoya. The body was later discovered to be that of Liana Carpenter, a 78-year-old former tenant of Puentes. Over the course of the next four days, a total of seven, let me say that a bit louder for those in the back, seven bodies were located in Puentes' backyard. Puente stuck around on that first and second day as the police dug, claiming she had no idea she had dead bodies buried in her backyard, and it was all very distressing to her. Right. (laughs) Partway through the second day of digging, Puente approaches Sacramento Police Detective John Cabrera and asks him, for the sake of her nerves, if she can go to the local Clarion Hotel and have a coffee. You know, just to get away from it all. Now, rewind to where I said the police were conducting the search without a warrant. They were conducting the search simply at the verbal allowance of Puente. So in order to stay on her good side so that they could continue their search, Cabrera said yes and let her go. This is where, Leah, I don't know if you remember this, but when I said we were going to do an episode about this incident, I instantly thought of this one absolutely infamous picture that comes to mind every time I think about this crazy event. And it is this picture right here. Looking at the picture, let's see. What year is it? This is 1988. Okay. Um, she's wearing, a, she looks like an elderly woman, very um, kind of put together, actually, even. Um, wearing a red dress with an umbrella over her head. I don't know. She just, she doesn't look like, I will say, because you can't see her eyes. She doesn't look like a murderer. Yes. This is a picture of Puente leaving the scene. It was captured by the local news media that had swarmed on the site, seeing all the commotion there. And the reason why this picture is so infamous is because this would be the last time the Sacramento Police Department would see Dorothea Puente for quite some time. I listened to an episode of the Exposed podcast about Dorothea Puente in which the host interviewed Detective Cabrera about this very moment. And he says on that podcast that that was the worst moment of his entire policing career, making the decision to let Dorothea Puente go. I agree. (laughs) It wasn't too long after Puente left that the police department discovered a fresh body. Sorry, I used the word fresh. That's super gross. Mm -hmm. I wasn't sure what other word to use to describe a body that was very recently put in the ground. Maybe moist. Oh, stop. You just made it worse. Well, that's the the way our drink was described. Awful. There was the correlation. There's the correlation. (laughs) Anyway, they find a fresh body covered in blankets and trash bags and are pretty certain that they have located the missing man, Alberto Montoya. Like, where in her tiny backyard did they find this and they hadn't found it before? 
four. They were digging for four days and ended up locating the seven bodies. Okay. Having watched Puente enter the Clarion Hotel right across the way, the officers swarmed on the place to arrest Puente then and there. Too bad she was already out of town. Mm -hmm. For four days, the police combed the state for Puente. It was later discovered that immediately upon entering the Clarion Hotel, Puente had used a payphone, called a cab, and fled to L.A. with thousands of dollars in her pocket. Once in L.A., I swear this lady just cannot stop. With the amount of time she was arrested, you know, everybody knows, this woman just cannot stop. Immediately upon arriving in L.A., she is already in a bar and trying to swindle an elderly man there for his pension. What on earth? Right. Fortunately, this man shortly thereafter saw television coverage featuring Dorothy Puente, and upon recognizing her as the flirty old lady that he had just met at the bar, he called the cops and Puente was apprehended. Was she still selling herself as a 70-year-old woman at this point? Yes. To, to, to the guy she was trying to pick up in the bar? Correct. Oh, cool. Okay. As I'm sure you can imagine, the Sacramento Police Department took some major heat for letting this murderer go. Yeah. We discussed this. If you listen to that exposed podcast that I mentioned earlier, you can hear in Detective Cabrera's own words his regret. But even still, he contends that they had no grounds for holding Puente. She hadn't been charged with anything. Although more modern contemporaries disagree, stating that, at the very least, the police department was aware that Puente was in violation of her parole exactly. and could have been held on account of that. Exactly. They knew her criminal background. I know. That right there is enough to see, like, she was breaking the law. And knew she was in violation of her parole, stating that she could never, ever run a boarding house again. I know. Either way, four days after her escape, she was arrested and hauled back to good old Sacktown. Sacktown. <laughs> her trial wouldn't take place until four years later and was moved to Monterey, California, as the result of a motion granted for a change of venue proposed by her attorneys as a means of obtaining a fair trial for their client. The media in Sacramento had been so great in the wake of this case that they were confident she would not receive a fair trial here. Hmm. Now, here's where Miss Puente continues to make history. Dorothea Puente's case ended up being the longest trial in California history. Her trial began in October of 1992, and it lasted an entire year. She ended up being charged with nine murders, as police were able to connect her to two other murders in addition to the seven bodies located in her backyard at 1426 F Street. Out of respect for the victims, I'm going to read aloud each of their names. Alberto Montoya, Ruth Monroe, Leona Carpenter, Everson Gilmuth, Dorothy Miller, Benjamin Fink, Vera Faye Martin, Betty Palmer, and James Gallup. The prosecution called over 130 witnesses and ended up showing over 3,100 exhibits during the course of this trial. One particular witness was from the Social Security Administration that was able to calculate the number of Social Security checks being delivered to 1426 F Street and was also able to verify that Puente was cashing out the checks even after the deaths of her tenants. 
Another witness called was a neighbor of hers that recalled on several occasions the horrible smell that came out of Puente's house. And on one particular occasion, this neighbor also found a whole set of human teeth in his own backyard, WTF. Didn't question that at all. Like, if you found a bunch of human teeth in your backyard, may or may not, like, phone a cop real quick. Yeah, just real quick. just, you know, a bit unusual. Okay. The jury ended up deliberating for 43 days. The jury ended up convicting her on two counts of first-degree murder and one count of second-degree murder. All other counts were squashed on account of one particular juror that was hung. Now, before people get all up in arms about that juror not being able to unanimously side with the remainder of the jury, let's talk about the biggest still ongoing detail of the Puente case and the number one reason why some people still to this day are not convinced of her guilt. Oh, I'm intrigued. You've seen the pictures of her. She was a frail old lady. So how was she able to drag these bodies to her yard, chop them up because... FYI, some of the bodies were found without their hands, feet, or heads, and buried them in her backyard all by herself. Can I answer? Yeah. She she was faking. I mean, like, yeah, she looks kind of frail, but, like, there are some 70-year-olds that can outrun me in a race. (laughs) And she wasn't even 70. There, There has been a theory for a long time that she had an accomplice. I'm not completely opposed to that theory. There were neighbors that testified that they had seen a homeless man by the nickname of Chief at the house a lot, and he served as somewhat of a hired hand for Puente. These same neighbors testified that they had actually witnessed Chief pouring concrete in Puente's backyard several times, all before one day just going missing. I think it's very possible that she was able to hire some help from an unfortunate soul and got them to do the dirty work for her for some money. Yeah, that's not unrealistic, I guess. You, wait, you don't think? No, I, that I'm saying that's like totally plausible. Exactly, just because the because of the kind of people that she um, helped out with that yeah. she associated with. Yeah, just the type of people that you know she she had the means, she had the money to give those less fortunate a little bit of cash to. Hey, can you drag this trash bag that is exactly 165 pounds to my backyard? Yeah. We'll never know, though, because Puente continued to proclaim her innocence. The most she ever admitted to was cashing the checks of her deceased tenants, but she always denied any involvement in their deaths. Following the trial, Puente was sentenced to life imprisonment at the Central California Women's Facility in Chowchilla, where she stayed until she died of natural causes in 2011. I also have to mention that while in prison, she wrote a cookbook quite literally titled Cooking with a Serial Killer, Mm. which can be found on Amazon now for just $10. Leah, I have to have you read the quote on the back of the book from Miss Puente herself. Okay. (laughs) I don't want to. Um, None of them. I want to do like an old lady voice. Uh, I can't do an old lady. None of them were murdered. (laughs) That's perfect. (laughs) They died of natural causes. I couldn't do that anyhow. I'm not the type of person. I'm too caring and I worry too much about my people eating. Okay. Um, Everybody can tell you that. Why would I spend money fattening them up if I was going to kill them? Dorothea Puente, convicted killer slash gourmet cook. (laughs) 
that's the quote that's on the back of the book that you can get on Amazon for $10. I might purchase that. I, I mean, I've considered it too. It has really, really good reviews. It has like 4.5 stars because people are like, her tamales were fantastic. Oh my Lord. Yeah. So like I mentioned at the top of the episode, the house at 1426 F Street still stands. I'm sure you're familiar with this, Leah, but there are several his, like more historical older houses in the Sacramento um, area that are part of a historic registry and therefore cannot be torn down by law. This was one of those houses. That's interesting. Like I mentioned at the beginning, the current owners who became owners in 2010 have totally made the house into a tourist spot and it is super neat to look at when passing by. And I know that they used to do tours of the inside of the house, but I haven't seen anything in a long time. And of course, being the weirdo that I am, I regularly check. Right. This house is iconic in Sacramento history, though. It's been given an array of names, such as the Yard of Death, the Death Garden, the Graveyard on F Street, the House of Death, and more. Oh, I like all of them. <laughs> and on a final note, to anyone interested in doing some additional independent research, Sacramento has this amazing facility called the Center for Sacramento History, where anybody can go in and check out evidence and trial exhibits from some of Puente's cases. Oh my gosh. Did you do that? I wish. I wish. All right, you guys. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Hashtag History. I swear next week is not a true crime episode. In fact, next week is about a historical figure that everyone on the planet knows about. But just how much do you know about him? We'll see you guys next week for more on that. We will post the pictures from this episode to our Instagram and all sources used to put this episode together can be found on our website. If you enjoyed the episode, do us a favor and subscribe to Hashtag History on whatever podcast platform you use, share it with a friend, and give us a rate and review. That was very staccato. Because I'm getting to the end and I am ready to go home and go to sleep. <laughs> yes. <laughs> And be sure to check us out on Instagram at hashtag history underscore podcast. Thank you, guys. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Yeah. <laughs> Bye, guys. <laughs>
condensed milk. That's why when I I went for the fridge initially, like yeah, she, I was like, can you grab the condensed milk? She opens my fridge. I was like, girl, it's in the cover. The aftertaste is, see, for me, it's actually the aftertaste that's worse. It tastes like breast milk. And not that I've ever, I mean, other than when I was a child, I didn't taste breast milk. That sounds bad. But, um, I mean, if you're into that, whatever. <laughs> or in this case, milk. Milky. M- milky. Now, it's right around this time in the last, in the last 1960s. That doesn't even make the last sense. part of the 1960s? Sure. Now it's right around this time. House, building house. Again, what is happening? Were you drunk when you did this one? No, I was not drunk. I was at work. <laughs> Why? How could you ever hate him? Um, I think it was about the time the lake house came out, and I was like, uh, that who movie is-, is this guy? I mean, I knew who he was. Okay. Um, that movie's not great. But then, I- but I've watched it a hundred times still. Yeah. Yeah, and he's also the type of person that just like. There's a video of him sitting on the subway. Some little old lady comes in. Have you seen this one? Yeah, and then he gets up and gives it to her. And also the sandwich picture. The sandwich picture. I love him. I know. All right. 